This has been quite a ride through Matthew 24, um, but nothing like the ride that we're going to be talking about as we work through our passage for this morning. As we're looking at the second coming of Christ and all the events that are accompanying it. Now last week we talked about the Antichrist and as, as he does something that Jesus refers to as the abomination that causes desecration. Which also was the trigger or is, will be the trigger that sets off all the horrible events of the Great Tribulation. Now, at the end of the service yesterday, Roy reminded me of something that I I need to add that takes place when the Antichrist, also known as the beast, you've heard that term for him, sets himself up as the only God in the temple of Jerusalem who is to be worshipped. Now, did you know there's actually going to be two beasts, according to Revelation? We've been talking about the first beast. That's, that's the Antichrist that we're talking about. But Revelation 13, 11 talks about a second beast, also referred to as a final false prophet in Revelation 16. Listen to Revelation 13, verses 11 to 16. If you want to turn to it, you can. Uh, this, is, this is not our main passage, but I just kind of a uh, completion of last week's message. Revelation 13, starting verse 11. Then I saw a second beast. Coming out of the earth, it had two horns like like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants uh, worship the first beast. Talking about the Antichrist. And performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast, in honor of the Antichrist, who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands and on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now, I was looking through, my wife's got a John, John MacArthur study Bible, and I was looking through there, and John MacArthur, in a note in, in his study Bible concerning this, says this, This final false prophet, the second beast, will promote the Antichrist's power and will convince the world to worship him as God. This second beast will be the chief, most persuasive proponent of satanic religion. The Antichrist will be primarily a political and military leader, but the false prophet will be a religious leader. Politics and religion will unite in a worldwide religion of worshiping the Antichrist. He will do that by setting up an image of the Antichrist, okay, an idol, an image of the Antichrist in the holy place, in the temple, in Jerusalem. That's the ultimate abomination that is detestable to God. Again, this will take place at the three-and-a-half-year mark in the seven years before the second coming of Christ. If you remember the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, 
Verse 2 and 3, the number one commandment. You remember what that was. I am the Lord your God You are uh, who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Number one command. If you remember uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 25, there's one of, a number of instances referring to the gods of the ungodly nations around Israel. It says, the graven images of their gods is an abomination to the Lord your God. And then we have here in Revelation 13, 15, which we just read, the second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. A speaking image. <laughs> is that even possible? How can we imagine, or here John says that uh, this, the beast was able to give breath to an image, to a statue, to an idol. How could people even fall for that? Listen to this. I came across an article written by the Arizona Republic by Elizabeth Montgomery, May 6th this year, okay, just, just a few months ago. And she writes in that article, Could you imagine watching a 10-story tall Beyonce perform on Grand Avenue? What about John Lennon on Van Buren or a much larger-than-life Larry Fitzgerald near State Farm Stadium? The possibilities are endless if a European group's plans come together. A company in Ireland is hoping to bring the world's tallest moving statue to 21 cities in 2021, including Phoenix. Called the Giant, it's a programmable moving statue that's 10 stories tall and covered with millions of LED pixels that allow it to take form of any person, even Abraham Lincoln. According to a press release, the Giant's arms and head can move in multiple directions and would change shape every hour as crowds gather below. The Giant can take on any image, so you could even find yourself featured. Talk about us ultimate selfie. The statue can also sing and speak. The idea was developed by entrepreneur Patty Dunning, Berlin-based architecture studio Dan Perlman, and backed by the commercial real estate company Enterprise Ireland. Now, from their own website, thegiantcompany.ie, look it up sometime, this is how they are promoting it. The world's tallest moving sculpture, the world's most exciting digital art gallery, a panoramic viewing tower, the giant instantly transforms into any image, the state-of-the-art ex exhibition featuring virtual reality, augmented, re augmented reality, artificial intelligence. The world's most amazing selfie, the world's most captivating billboard, a roof garden introduced, introducing new concepts in dining, retail, and entertainment, and the giant speaks and sings. What did John say in Revelation 13, 15? The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak. Now, the Apostle John, when seeing this vision, okay, he was seeing all these things that were to come in Revelation, had no concept of virtual, virtual reality or augmented reality or artificial intelligence. Um, to, to him, it would have looked like the statue was given breath, right, to speak. 
Now, I find it interesting that this is coming out of Europe where the Antichrist first sets up his kingdom and takes authority. Now, listen carefully. I'm not saying, okay, please, listen carefully. I am not saying these giants that are being set up possibly this year are a fulfillment of this passage. But could this be subtly conditioning the masses to accept the eventual image of the beast being set up in Jerusalem that the false prophet will set up to speak? It's an interesting thought. But the image that will be set up will represent the Antichrist, which will be worshipped by the whole world. That's what Revelation is telling us. And it's that event that is the abomination that causes desolation, which is also the event that triggers a great distress that Jesus talks about in verse 24. The great tribulation that takes place for the next three and a half years. Now those of us who love the Lord Jesus Christ... Those of us who study God's Word are very aware that the world as we know it, the world as it's ruled by mankind, will end in the glorious coming of Jesus. The first time He came to die on the cross, next time He comes in glory, and He comes to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we celebrate that in the Christian Missionary Alliance. Uh, it's part of our logo, Jesus Christ, Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and the crown represents what? Coming King. He is coming. This morning we come to an exciting passage for believers, for Christians, for followers of Jesus Christ, where Jesus instructs His disciples on the matter of His second coming, and is found in Matthew chapter 24, Verses 29 to 31. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, go ahead and look it up. If you've got your little electronic device, um, you can look it up on that. Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 29. And Jesus is speaking here, and he says, Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now here in these three verses is very clear, concise, straightforward, understandable uh, terms. Jesus himself tells us about the greatest event that we as believers have to look forward to. He came once. He will come again. In fact, as he was ascending the first time, you remember it tells us in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. You remember that passage? And then two angels came, because the disciples was kind of, where'd he go? And the two, two angels appeared to the disciples and told them that this same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. He sent it up into heaven physically, bodily, taken away in a cloud, and so he will return physically and bodily coming on the clouds. This has been the hope of ages, the event that believers have been looking forward to for the past 2,000 years. 
In fact, the Apostle Paul says in his letter to Titus, chapter 2, verse 12, that we are, quote, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, okay, while we're in anticipation for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting that the world is very familiar with the first coming, the events and the circumstances surrounding Christ's first coming. For the most part, they're familiar with Bethlehem and the manger and the shepherds and the wise men and with Herod. They're familiar with Joseph and Mary and the frankincense and myrrh and the song of the angels. But the world, for the most part, is far less familiar, and unfortunately the church as a whole oftentimes is far less familiar with the story of his second coming with all the details and circumstances that are included with that. And yet the prophets and Jesus himself have actually given us a lot of very clear instructions about those details, about those circumstances of the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ. And in the three verses we read this morning, Jesus describes his second coming, not all of the events in it, or the elements, but the very moment that it occurs, the sign that, has, that it has arrived. And as simple and straightforward as the words were that Jesus used, as he told the disciples here in these few verses, he opens so much more for us to understand. So let's get started. He says in verse 29, Immediately, immediately after the distress of those days, same word used in verse 24, distress, tribulation. Now, it's not rocket science here. It doesn't take a genius to figure out when the second coming is going to take place. Jesus tells us right here, no, we don't know the day, we don't know the hour. But he tells us when it's going to happen. The second coming in, in glory to set up his kingdom will happen immediately after this time period called the Great Tribulation. How do we know that? Because we're reading the verses in context of this whole chapter, of chapter 24. He says, immediately after the distress of those days. Which days? The days of distress that he just finished talking about from verses 4 all the way down through verse 28. It's going to be a time of deception, a time of war, a time of famine, an earthquake, a time of persecution and hatred, a time of false prophecy. It's a time when evil is so rampant that many people who appear to be religious are, are going to defect from religion and band themselves to evil. It will be a time of hunting down and slaughtering of those who have come to believe in Jesus. That's why Jesus said, when you see the image of the Antichrist being set up in the temple of Jerusalem, run, flee to the mountains, hide. Those next three and a half years are going to be the worst that the world has ever seen. And here in verse 20, 29, Jesus says, Immediately after the distress of those days, after the distress of those days, something is going to happen. Something is going to happen. Then he, he kind of builds a suspense uh, just a little bit with the disciples as he sets a stage for that event. Continuing in verse 29, he says, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Something incredible is going to happen. Have you ever thought about what Jesus just said there? 
the whole universe as we know it and as we experience it begins an instant disintegration. If we look over at Luke chapter 21, verse 25, where Luke fills in more of what Jesus uh, explained, he says, There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity, total confusion. At the roaring and tossing of the sea, the, 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 the tides controlled by the moon no longer have the stability of the moon. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken Luke says, or Jesus said through Luke. And the word faint from terror, according to the Greek dictionary, can mean either to faint or to breathe out life, (laughs) to expire. It can also refer, refer to hearts failing. That's how terrifying those events are going to be. It could very well be that both, both of those things, the fainting and, and dying, could happen. Those maybe who have a super strong and super healthy hearts, maybe they're going to faint in terror. But I'd lay odds on the fact that many will have heart attacks and die of fright, very literally. The last phrase that Jesus said in verse 29 in Matthew 24 should make, make us pause a moment. The NIV states, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. The Greek very literally says, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. It uses the word dunamis, the actual Greek word for power, dynamite. So, so what's he saying here? Well, in the heavens, which encompasses a whole universe, everything is held together by power. There is control. There is controlling influence in the universe. In fact, we know what that power is because Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 tells us, The sun, S-O-N, the sun, is a radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, listen, sustaining all things by what? His powerful Word. Sustaining all things by His powerful Word. It is God Himself in the Son who holds things together. If you remember back in John chapter 1, what, or better yet, who created everything. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Jesus and the Word are interchangeable. Jesus is the Word. The same Word who created all things, now we're seeing in Hebrews 1, sustains all things with His power. He holds things together so that gravity doesn't fluctuate, so that orbits don't fluctuate. And we can send these uh, little metal things up in the space called space probes and satellites and even what we think is a monstrous space station, all of which must look like tiny little tinker toys to God if you think about it. But we can send them up and we know where they're going to go to. We know where they're going to stop and what they're going to do in their rotation and what they're going to do in their orbits. And we can calculate all that because why? Because of the unchanging, fixed powers of the heavens so that the moons, planets, and stars move consistently at all times. And they do what is predicted for them to do. Our scientists can even mathematically predict uh, years, centuries, thousands of years into the future because they have such uniformity in the past. The heavenly bodies are controlled by the upholding power of the Word of God, Jesus Himself. 
But all of a sudden, Jesus lets go. Think about that. Jesus lets go. And the powers that normally hold the universe together no longer do that. And you have chaos with all the heavenly bodies at random careening through space. And the earth becomes a victim of this incredible breakdown of the whole universe. Now, very specifically, he says the sun will be darkened. It goes black. Just the implications of that alone are staggering. No sunlight. People cannot exist without the sunlight. The temperature change will be cataclysmic, and everybody's worried about global warming. That will be global cooling like you've never seen before, worse than the Ice Age. And then the moon doesn't give its light because it's reflected from the sun. The tides are in, in instant chaos because that's controlled by the, the moon. The stars begin to tumble out of their places. In Revelation, we saw that it says the heavens are rolled back like a scroll, and the stars begin to fall like shaking overripe figs off of a tree, fig tree. The whole universe <laughs> begins to fall apart. There was a Russian scientist by the name of Velikovsky who wrote a book, and in, in one section he talks about what would most likely happen if a heavenly body was loose in space and happened to pass close enough to the earth to tilt the earth just a tad on its axis. Listen to what he says. And I, I've, I've looked up some other, other articles by other scientists, and many of them are say, say the, uh, similar things. But this is how Velikovsky uh, describes it. Quote, at that very moment, an earthquake would make the earth shudder. Air and water would continue to move through inertia. Hurricanes would sweep the earth, and the seas would rush over the continents, carrying gravel and sand and marine animals and casting them on the land. Heat would be developed, rocks would melt, volcanoes would erupt, and lava would flow from fissures in the ruptured ground and cover vast areas. Mountains would spring up from the plains and would travel and climb um, on the shoulders of other mountains, causing faults and rifts. Lakes would be tilted and emptied. Rivers would change their beds. Large land areas with all their inhabitants would slip under the sea. Seas would turn into deserts, their waters flowing away. <laughs> Quite a description. It's inconceivable to us. The earth is held together by the power of the heavens, by the very hand of Jesus. And when that power is not there, the chaos is going to be indescribable. So Jesus is saying that just before he comes, this is all going to take place. But you know what's fascinating? This isn't something brand new that Jesus is saying here. This was already prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus is actually referring back to Isaiah chapter 13 and Isaiah chapter 34. If we take a look at Isaiah 13 just a minute, Isaiah is actually predicting the destruction of Babylon. The destruction of Babylon because of the sin that is rampant there and what they did to God's people. But again, we need to remember that the words of the Old Testament prophets had a very historical fulfillment in their time period, and there was also a prophetic one as well, much further into the future. So in, in Isaiah's mind, as he was writing this down, as he was receiving the, the inspiration from the Holy Spirit, as he speaks God's word of destruction, he only sees the destruction of Babylon because he knows about Babylon. But God is looking beyond all of that to the devastation and destruction of the whole world at the coming of Christ. Notice verse 6, Isaiah 13. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. 
It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every heart will melt with fear. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel, uh, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. Then listen to what he says in verse 10. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish, listen, not Babylon, I will punish the world for its evil the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make people scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. And then verse 13 says, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble. The earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of His burning anger. And then if we look very, very quickly at Isaiah 34, just the first few verses. The description continues. Come near, you nations, and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that comes out of it. He's calling the whole world to pay attention. The Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is on all their armies. Why? Because he's talking about uh, the armies that have gone against his people, his, uh, his people of Israel. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will stink. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. All the stars in the sky will be dissolved. And the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. Sound familiar? That's what Jesus is saying. But you know, it's easy to say that Jesus was quoting Isaiah, or Jesus was drawing imagery from Isaiah, But who gave those words to Isaiah to prophesy in the first place? Ever thought about that? Jesus did. Because He is the Word. So Jesus is just reiterating reiterating what He told Isaiah so many years before. He's just saying it again here in Matthew. The prophet uh, Joel speaks about the same thing. He describes it in the same way in in, in chapter 2. Haggai the prophet Chapter 2, again, describes it in the, in the same terms. And, you, and if, if you remember Peter, when he was preaching at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he quotes the prophecy of Joel here. Listen, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And of course, in Revelation 6, you have that same imagery with the people actually calling out, quote, to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So back to Matthew 24. Jesus tells us when this is going to happen. He tells us what's going to happen when this happens. And then he gives us a sign. Then he gives us the sign. Verse 30, then will appear the sign. That's what they're looking for. You remember back in verse 3? That's what the disciples were asking, right? Jesus was sitting on the mountain of Olives. The disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? 
So first of all, Jesus gave them a list of general signs in verses 4 through 14. And then he gave them the signal or the trigger that's going to trigger all of that uh, with the abomination that causes desolation. But he still hasn't given them the sign. What will be the sign of your coming? Now there have been a number of hypotheses that have been given, that have been put out there, what that sign is going to be, what they should be looking for. Some say it's going to be a blazing, flaming cross that will appear in the sky for the whole world to see. I mean, today, what, re- what represents Christ is the cross, right? So they think, okay, it's just going to be super bright. Others feel that the sign is going to be the Shekinah glory of God, great amazing light from God, Shekinah glory that we read about in the Old Testament, like a a blazing light coming out in the sky. But if we look at verse 30 carefully, I think Jesus is quite clear here. He says, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, I learned something new about grammar this week. The verb tense used here in the Greek for will appear is what they call a subjective genitive. How many of you can give me a definition for that? I couldn't either before this. (laughs) Which would then make it mean the sign by which he will appear. It's not an objective genitive, which would mean the sign which points to him. Like the cross, the sign that points to Jesus or which represents him. Now, what does that actually mean? Very simply, it's not going to be a blazing cross, I don't believe, nor will it be a bright light detached from the Son of Man. No, I believe the sign will be the Son of Man in heaven. In the midst of this blackness, remember the sun's gone black, the moon's no longer shining, the stars have fallen out of the sky, the the light's been snuffed out. In the midst of all that, there will appear a blazing, infinite, unveiled glory of the Son of Man, Jesus himself. Last week we sang the song, We have a story to tell to the nations, and, and the chorus struck me like it's never struck me before. For the darkness shall turn to What? To dawning. And dawning to noonday bright. And Christ's great kingdom shall come to earth, a kingdom of love and light. That's what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 24. The darkness, and then there's going to be light. In fact, at the end of verse 30, it says, He will come not just with glory, but with what? With great glory. Glory like the world has never seen. The unveiled Shekinah glory of God. Not by itself, but with Jesus. Remember back in Matthew 17, we, uh, we, we looked at the passage talking about the transfiguration of Christ. Jesus took James, Peter, and John up there on the mountain and pulled aside the veil of flesh just for a moment. And they beheld his glory. And they got a taste of what that second coming Shekinah glory is going to be. And it was only a tiny glimpse, but Peter never forgot it. Probably the others, uh, nor, nor the others. When he wrote Second Peter in chapter 1, verse 16, he wrote, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's going back to this kind of glory that they saw on that mountain. We got a glimpse of his second coming glory. 
And a glimpse up until that point is all the people have ever seen. I believe Adam and Eve had a glimpse back in the garden in in Genesis when it tells us that the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The people of Israel had a glimpse of the glory when it it dwelt between the wings of the cherubim in the Holy of Holies and the temple there in in, uh, the tabernacle as they were moving through the the Old Testament and the temple in Jerusalem. They saw it as a pillar of cloud at night and a a pillar of fire uh, during the day switched pillar of, cloud, pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night as they were being led through the desert. But the world has never seen the full unveiled glory, but the world will see it then. That's what he's talking about. The sign then is going to be the glory of the Lord Jesus come, uh, Christ coming in majesty. He will be distinguishable. I believe he will be recognizable, and yet he will be in full glory. It also says at the end of verse 30 that they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the heavens. And Acts 1.9 tells us that Jesus will come back in the same way that uh, you, you saw him go up into heaven, right? He went up in the clouds, he's coming back in the clouds. Daniel says he'll come with the clouds in heaven, Daniel 7. John says in Revelation chapter 1 says, uh, that he'll come uh, with the clouds. Both Mark and Luke say he'll come, come in the clouds. Here in Matthew says he's coming on the clouds of heaven. So all the writers agree that he will be coming surrounded by clouds. There's got to be something special about the clouds. I'm not sure exactly what it is, except that the Old Testament tells us that the clouds are God's chariot. Listen to Psalm 104, verse 1 and 3. Praise the Lord, my soul, Lord, my God. Uh, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. Listen, he makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of, of, of the wind. Isaiah 19, 1 says, See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud. And so the scene is really indescribable. The world is in panic. People everywhere are fainting and dying of sheer terror. There's total blackness. And in the midst of all that blackness and that black chaos appears the glory of the Son of God in heaven, in complete majesty, unveiled, holy, Shekinah presence of Jesus Christ and riding on the chariot of God, (laughs) riding on the clouds, coming back. And he appears in the sky. And folks, there will be no doubt on the face of the earth. Revelation 1.7 tells us that, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see. That's the sign. That is the sign. Again, this was all prophesied in the Old Testament. Take a quick look at Zechariah 14.6. Now, I'm going to give you the, the direct Hebrew transliteration, which is uh, fascinating. And it shall be in that day that there shall not be light Dark, dark. <laughs> That's what the Hebrew says. The last two words of the verse, kafa, kafa, dark, dark, pitch black. Verse 7 goes on to say, it shall be a day known to the Lord, which means it's going to be a unique day that only God can describe or understand because man has never seen anything like it before. There is no scientific explanation for that kind of a day. It's a day that only God can explain. Uh, it goes on to say, not day, not night. 
Why? Because the sun and moon are gone. The stars are gone. There's nothing to distinguish day from night. Then it says, when evening comes, there will be light. Which means that at the end of that time period, there will be light. What light? (laughs) The Shekinah glory of Jesus. The Shekinah glory of Jesus coming on the clouds. And Jesus just said, it is a sign of the Son of Man in heaven coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Well, just how bright would it be? Revelation 21-23, talking about the new Jerusalem in heaven, says this, The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is what? The Lamb is its lamp. The Lamb, Jesus Christ. If Jesus can light up all of heaven, he can certainly light up this little tiny ball we call earth. That's going to be amazing. What a sight that will be. Can't you wait? But you may be thinking, yeah, but bummer, Pastor, uh, you just said that we're not going to be here because the church is already uh, raptured. We've we're already been caught up in heaven. We're not going to even be there to see it. It's true, I don't believe we'll be here because we'll be raptured, caught up in the air with Christ before the tribulation begin. And we're actually going to be talking about that the, 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 in my next message. But part of the reason I believe that is because of the promise we read in Revelation 3.10, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. He's going to keep his church. He's going to keep those that love Jesus Christ from that. Paul also tells us in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, that Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath. We don't have to face that wrath. So I think we'll be with the Lord when that takes place, and there are many other reasons that that we're going to be looking at. But what about when when Christ comes in glory? Are we going to see that? Are are we going to see anything of, of that at all? Well, let me answer that question by looking at what Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3. It says, When Christ, who is your life, appears. When? At the end, in all of his glory. When Christ appears then you also will appear with him in glory. That's amazing. When he appears, we who know him and love him, who have been raised with Christ, verse 1 of Colossians 3, who are alive in Christ, verse 3 of Colossians 3, You who know the Savior as your Lord, and He is your life, verse 4, you will appear with Him in glory. Do you know what that means? You're not going to see it from down here. Because we're already going to be up there with Him. And when He comes in glory, we will appear with Him in the midst of that glory. It's going to be spectacular. And you may be asked, well, how how do you know that, Pastor? Because in Revelation chapter 9, it talks about the wedding of the Lamb. Listen. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like the loud uh, peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. Why? For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and listen, and His bride has made herself ready. His bride... Who's his bride? It's the church. It's you and I. 
who trust in Jesus. And then it says, fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her, to his bride, to the church, to those who love Jesus. Bright linen, bright and clean, have been given to her to wear. Now that's important. Because in verse 11, it talks about Christ coming in glory at the end of the tribulation. Listen. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. That's Jesus himself on that white horse. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dripped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. There it is again, the Word of God. Now listen. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, some scholars feel that this army that Jesus is bringing with him is, are, are, are going to be angels. Because in the Old Testament, God uses angels, right? <laughs> the, the army of God. They, they, they came and they fought, fought uh, for God. But I believe that those who will be riding on white horses will be us will be His church. And included in that will be the people of God from the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints, as well as the bride of Christ, His church. Now, why do I say that? What, one very logical uh, reason is angels never rode horses. Have you ever heard anything in the Old Testament about angels riding horses into battle? They didn't need to ride horses. But more importantly, who's sitting at the marriage supper of the Lamb? And how are they described? It's the bride of Christ, the church. It's all those who have been robed in what? Fine linen, bright and clean. Symbolizing their perfection and purity and righteousness that comes from the blood of Christ shed for them on the cross. The angels didn't need that. They didn't need that. The angels didn't need to be robed in fine linen of righteousness. So when Revelation 19.14 says the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white, uh, white and clean, is not referring to the angels, it's referring to us. So we'll be there. Only we'll be up looking down, not down looking up. How cool is that, right? Exciting. For those of us who will be with him. But there in the middle of verse 30, it says this, And then all the peoples on the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Why? Why will, be they, will they be mourning? Because those who have not made the decision for Christ during that time period, they'll know that it's too late. It's too late. They'll know that they should have taken seriously all the warnings and all the preaching and all the spreading of the gospel that's been going on. In Zechariah 12, 10 and 11, this was foreseen. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great. It'll be too late. The final gospel has been preached by the angel that God sends around the whole world, to every tongue and every nation. And when Christ comes, there will be no second chances. But for those who did listen, 
Listen to those two evangelists. We talked about that. God's going to send two evangelists to, to continue uh, spreading the gospel. And then he's going to send that final a- angel one more time to spread the gospel around the whole world. Verse 31 says, And he, Jesus, will send his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. They will only gather those who have already confessed Jesus as Lord. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, every tongue will acknowledge Jesus, King of glory, now. And the question for us is, have you confessed Jesus Christ? Confessed Him as Lord? Have you confessed Him as King of glory? Folks, there will, be, there, there will come a day when it's going to be too late. We need to make our lives right now. Bow our heads in prayer. Father, this morning, is, we're talking about spectacular things. We're, we're looking forward to the second coming of Christ. But Father, at the same time, uh, it, it's, it's kind of a bittersweet sensation that, that we feel because we, we, we can't wait. We're excited about it because we know that we're going to be caught up. We're going to be in heaven with you for all of eternity. But Father, so many of our friends, many of our family members, many of our colleagues, other people that we see around us, they're not going to be able to experience that. Father, I pray that you place that burden on our hearts, not only to live our lives correctly and rightly and in, in, in righteousness and justice, but Father, that we would have that boldness and the, the, the um, sense that we've got to get out and we've got to share that gospel with those around so they too can have that wonderful experience of being caught up with Jesus. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.